Everybody dies, don't they? Everybody come back, don't they? Isn't that so? You tried to get into the locked room today, didn't you? How do the dead come back, mother? Seven. The next day Oakhurst was full of people, and Mrs. Oak, to my amazement, was doing the honours of it, as if a house full of commonplace, noisy young creatures bent on flirting and tennis were her usual idea of felicity. The afternoon of the third day, they had come for an electioneering ball and stayed three nights. The weather changed. It turned suddenly very cold and began to pour. Everyone was sent indoors, and there was a general gloom suddenly over the company. Mrs. Oak seemed to have got sick of her guests and was listlessly lying back on a couch, paying not the slightest attention to the chattering and piano strumming in the room, when one of our guests suddenly proposed that they should play charades. He was a distant cousin of the Oaks, a sort of fashionable artistic bohemian, swelled out to intolerable conceit by the amateur actor vogue of a season. It will be lovely in this marvellous old place, he cried, just to dress up and parade about and feel as if we belong to the past. I have heard that you have a marvellous collection of old costumes, more or less ever since the days of Noah somewhere, Cousin Bill. The whole party exclaimed in joy at this proposal. William Oak looked puzzled for a moment and glanced at his wife, who continued to lie listless on her sofa. Um, uh, there's a press uh, full of clothes uh, belonging to the family, he answered dubiously, apparently overwhelmed by the desire to please his guests. But, but I, I don't know whether it's respectful to dress up in the clothes of dead people. Oh, fiddlestick, cried the cousin. What do the dead people know about it? Besides, he added with mock seriousness, I assure you, we shall behave in the most reverent way and feel quite solemn about it all. If only you will give us the key, old man. Again, Mr. Oak looked towards his wife and again met only her vague, absent glance. Uh, uh, very well, he said, and led his guests upstairs. An hour later, the house was filled with the strangest crew and the strangest noises. I had entered, to a certain extent, into William Oak's feeling of unwillingness to let his ancestors' clothes and personality be taken in vain. But when the masquerade was complete, I must say that the effect was quite magnificent. A dozen youngish men and women, those who were staying in the house and some neighbours who had come for lawn tennis and dinner, were rigged out under the direction of the theatrical cousin in the contents of that oaken press and I have never seen a more beautiful sight than the panelled corridors, the carved and the scutcheoned staircase, the dim drawing-rooms with their faded tapestries, the great hall with its vaulted and ribbed ceiling, dotted about with groups or single figures that seem to have come straight from the past. Even William Oak, who beside myself and a few elderly people was the only man not masqueraded, seemed delighted and fired by the sight. A certain schoolboy character suddenly came out in him, and finding that there was no costume left for him, he rushed upstairs and presently returned in the uniform he had worn before his marriage. I thought I had really never seen so magnificent a specimen of the handsome Englishman. He looked, despite all the modern associations of his costume, more genuinely old world than all the rest, a knight for the Black Prince or Sydney with his admirably regular features and beautiful fair hair and complexion. After a minute, even the elderly people had got costumes of some sort, 
dominoes arranged at the moment and hoods and all manner of disguises made out of pieces of old embroidery and oriental stuffs and furs. And very soon this rabble of maskers had become, so to speak, completely drunk with its own amusement, with the childishness and, if I may say so, the barbarism, the vulgarity underlying the majority even of well-bred English men and women. Mr. Oak himself doing the mountebank like a schoolboy at Christmas. Where's Mrs. Oak? Where's Alice? someone asked suddenly. Mrs. Oak had vanished. I could fully understand that to this eccentric being, with her fantastic, imaginative, morbid passion for the past, such a carnival as this must be positively revolting. And, absolutely indifferent as she was to giving offence, I could only imagine how she would have retired, disgusted, and outraged to dream her strange daydreams in the yellow room. But a moment later, as we were all noisily preparing to go into dinner, the door opened, and a strange figure entered. Stranger than any of these others who were profaning the clothes of the dead, a boy, slight and tall in a brown riding coat, leathern belt and big buff boots, a little grey cloak over one shoulder, a large grey hat slouched over the eyes, a dagger and a pistol at the waist. It was Mrs. Oak, her eyes preternaturally bright and her whole face lit up with a bold, perverse smile. Everyone exclaimed and stood aside. Then there was a moment's silence broken by faint applause, even to a crew of noisy boys and girls playing the fool in the garments of men and women long dead and buried. There is something questionable in the sudden appearance of a young married woman, the mistress of the house, in a riding coat and jackboots. And Mrs. Oak's expression did not make the jest seem any the less questionable. What is that costume? asked the theatrical cousin, who, after a second, had come to the conclusion that Mrs. Oak was merely a woman of marvellous talent, whom he must try and secure for his amateur troupe next season. It is the dress in which an ancestor of ours, my namesake, Alice Oak, used to go out riding with her husband in the days of Charles I, she answered, and took her seat at the head of the table. Involuntarily, my eyes sought those of Oak of Oakhurst. He, who blushed as easily as a girl of sixteen, was now as white as ashes, and I noticed that he pressed his hand almost convulsively to his mouth. Don't you recognize my dress, William? asked Mrs. Oak, fixing her eyes upon him with a cruel smile. He didn't answer and there was a moment's silence which the theatrical cousin had the happy thought of breaking by jumping upon his seat and emptying off his glass with the exclamation, To the health of the two Alice Oaks, of the past and the present! Mrs. Oak nodded, and with an expression I had never seen in her face before, answered in a loud and aggressive tone, To the health of the poet Mr. Christopher Lovelock, if his ghost be honouring this house with its presence. I felt suddenly as if I were in a madhouse. Across the table, in the midst of this room full of noisy wretches tricked out in red, blue, purple and party-coloured as men and women of the 16th, 17th and 18th centuries, as improvised Turks and Eskimos and dominoes and clowns, with faces painted and corked and flowered over, I seemed to see that sanguine sunset washing like a sea of blood over the heather, to where, 
by the black pond and the wind-warped firs, there lay the body of Christopher Lovelock, with his dead horse near him, the yellow gravel and lilac ling soaked crimson all around, and above emerged, as out of the redness, the pale blonde head covered with the grey hat, the absent eyes, and strange smile of Mrs. Oak. It seemed to me horrible, vulgar, abominable, as if I had got inside a madhouse. Eight. From that moment I noticed a change in William Oak, or rather a change that had probably been coming on for some time and got to the stage of being noticeable. I don't know whether he had any words with his wife about her masquerade of that unlucky evening. On the whole, I decidedly think not. Oak was with everyone a diffident and reserved man, and most of all so with his wife. Besides, I can fancy that he would experience a positive impossibility of putting into words any strong feeling of disapprobation towards her, that his disgust would unnecessarily be silent. But be this as it may, I perceived very soon that the relations between my host and hostess had become exceedingly strained. Mrs. Oak indeed had never paid much attention to her husband, and seemed merely a trifle more indifferent to his presence than she had been before. But Oak himself, although he affected to address her at meals from a desire to conceal his feeling, and a fear of making the position disagreeable to me, very clearly could scarcely bear to speak to, or even see his wife. The poor fellow's honest soul was quite brimful of pain, which he was determined not to allow to overflow, and which seemed to filter into his whole nature and poison it. This woman had shocked and pained him more than was possible to say, and yet it was evident that he could neither cease loving her nor commence comprehending her real nature. I sometimes felt as we took our long walks through the monotonous country across the oak-dotted grazing grounds, and by the brink of the dull green, serried hop-rows, talking at rare intervals about the value of the crops, the drainage of the estate, the village schools, the Primrose League, and the iniquities of Mr. Gladstone, while Oak of Oakhurst carefully cut down every tall thistle that caught his eye. I sometimes felt, I say, an intense and impotent desire to enlighten this man about his wife's character, I seemed to understand it so well, and to understand it well seemed to imply such a comfortable acquiescence, and it seemed so unfair that just he should be condemned to puzzle forever over this enigma, and wear out his soul trying to comprehend what now seemed so plain to me. But how would it ever be possible to get this serious, conscientious, slow-brained representative of English simplicity and honesty and thoroughness to understand the mixture of self-engrossed vanity, of shallowness, of poetic vision, of love, of morbid excitement that walked this earth under the name of Alice Oak. So, Oak of Oakhurst was condemned never to understand. But he was condemned also to suffer from his inability to do so. The poor fellow was constantly straining after an explanation of his wife's peculiarities, and although the effort was probably unconscious, it caused him a great deal of pain. The gash, 
the maniac frown, as my friend calls it, between his eyebrows, seemed to have grown a permanent feature of his face. Mrs. Oak, on her side, was making the very worst of the situation. Perhaps she resented her husband's tacit reproval of that masquerade night's freak, and determined to make him swallow more of the same stuff, for she clearly thought that one of William's peculiarities, and one for which she despised him, was that he could never be goaded into an outspoken expression of disapprobation, that from her he would swallow any amount of bitterness without complaining. At any rate, she now adopted a perfect policy of teasing and shocking her husband about the murder of Lovelock. She was perpetually alluding to it in her conversation, discussing in his presence what had or had not been the feelings of the various actors in the tragedy of 1626, and insisting upon her resemblance and almost identity with the original Alice Oak. Something had suggested to her eccentric mind that it would be delightful to perform in the garden at Oakhurst under the huge ilexes and elms, a little mask which she had discovered among Christopher Lovelock's works, and she began to scour the country and enter into vast correspondence for the purpose of effectuating this scheme. Letters arrived every other day from the theatrical cousin, whose only objection was that Oakhurst was too remote a locality for an entertainment in which he foresaw great glory to himself. And every now and then, there would arrive some young gentleman or lady whom Alice Oak had sent for to see whether they would do. I saw very plainly that the performance would never take place and that Mrs. Oak herself had no intention that it ever should. She was one of those creatures to whom realisation of a project is nothing and who enjoy the plan-making almost the more for knowing that it all will stop short at the plan. Meanwhile, this perpetual talk about the pastoral about Lovelock, his continual attitudinizing as the wife of Nicholas Oak, had the further attraction to Mrs. Oak of putting her husband into a condition of frightful, though suppressed, irritation, which she enjoyed with the enjoyment of a perverse child. You must not think that I looked on indifferent, although I admit that this was a perfect treat to an amateur student of character like myself. I really did feel most sorry for poor Oak, and frequently quite indignant with his wife. I was several times at the point of begging her to have more consideration for him, even of suggesting that this kind of behaviour, particularly before a comparative stranger like me, was very poor taste. But there was something elusive about Mrs. Oak which made it next to impossible to speak seriously with her, and beside, I was by no means sure that any interference on my part would not merely animate her perversity. One evening, a curious incident took place. We had just sat down to dinner, the Oaks, the theatrical cousin who was down for a couple of days, and three or four neighbours. It was dusk, and the yellow light of the candles mingled charmingly with the greyness of the evening. Mrs. Oak was not well, and had been remarkably quiet all day, more diaphanous, strange, and far away than ever, and her husband seemed to have felt a sudden return of tenderness almost of compassion for this delicate, fragile creature. We had been talking of quite indifferent matters when I saw Mr. Oak suddenly turn very white and look fixedly for a moment at the window opposite to his seat. But who's that fellow looking at the window and making signs to Alice? Damn his impudence, he cried, and jumping up, ran to the window, opened it and passed out into the twilight. We all looked at each other in surprise. 
Some of the party remarked upon the carelessness of servants in letting nasty-looking fellows hang about the kitchen. Others told stories of tramps and burglars. Mrs. Oak did not speak, but I noticed the curious, distant-looking smile in her thin cheeks. After a minute, William Oak came in, his napkin in his hand. He shut the window behind him and silently resumed his place. Well, who was it? we all asked. Uh, Nobody. I must have made a mistake, he answered, and turned crimson while he busily peeled a pear. It was probably Lovelock, remarked Mrs. Oak, just as she might have said it was probably the gardener, who with that faint smile of pleasure still in her face. Except the theatrical cousin who burst into a loud laugh, none of the company had ever heard Lovelock's name, and doubtless imagining him to be some natural appanage of the Oak family, groom or farmer, said nothing. So the subject dropped. From that evening onwards, things began to assume a different aspect. That incident was the beginning of a perfect system. A system of what? I scarcely know what to call it. A system of grim jokes on the part of Mrs. Oak, of superstitious fancies on the part of her husband, a system of mysterious persecutions on the part of some less earthly tenant of Oakhurst. Well, yes, after all, why not? We have all heard of ghosts, had uncles, cousins, grandmothers, nurses who've seen them. We're all a bit afraid of them at the bottom of our soul. So why shouldn't they be? I am too sceptical to believe in the impossibility of anything for my part. Besides, when a man has lived throughout a summer in the same house with a woman like Mrs. Oak of Oakhurst, he gets to believe in the possibility of a great many improbable things, I assure you, as a mere result of believing in her. And when you come to think of it, why not? That a weird creature, visibly not of this earth, a reincarnation of a woman who murdered her lover two centuries and a half ago, that such a creature should have the power of attracting about her, being altogether superior to earthly lovers, the man who loved her in that previous existence, whose love for her was his death. What is there astonishing in that? Mrs. Oak herself, I feel quite persuaded, believed, or half-believed it. Indeed, she very seriously admitted the possibility thereof one day that I made the suggestion half in jest. At all events, it rather pleased me to think so. It fitted in so well with the woman's whole personality. It explained those hours and hours spent all alone in the yellow room, where the very air, with its scent of heady flowers and old perfumed stuffs, seemed redolent of ghosts. It explained that strange smile, which was not for any of us, and yet was not merely for herself. That strange, far-off look in the wide, pale eyes. I liked the idea, and I liked to tease, or rather, to delight her with it. How should I know that the wretched husband would take such matters seriously? He became day by day more silent and perplexed-looking, and as a result, worked harder, and probably with less effect, at his land-improving schemes and political canvassing. It seemed to me that he was perpetually listening, watching, waiting for something to happen. A word spoken suddenly, the sharp opening of a door would make him turn, start, turn crimson, and almost tremble. The mention of Lovelock brought a helpless look, half a convulsion, 
like that of a man overcome by great heat into his face, and his wife, so far from taking any interest in his altered looks, went on irritating him more and more. Every time that the poor fellow gave one of those starts of his, or turned crimson at the sudden sound of a footstep, Mrs. Oak would ask him, with her contemptuous indifference, whether he had seen Lovelock. I soon began to perceive that my host was getting perfectly ill. He would sit at meals, never saying a word, with his eyes fixed scrutinizingly on his wife, as if vainly trying to solve some dreadful mystery, while his wife, ethereal, exquisite, went on talking in a listless way about the mask, about Lovelock, always about Lovelock. During our walks and rides, which we continued pretty regularly, he would start whenever in the roads or lanes surrounding Oakhurst or in its grounds we perceived a figure in the distance. I have seen him tremble at what, on nearer approach, I could scarcely restrain my laughter on discovering to be some well-known farmer or neighbour or servant. Once, as we were returning home at dusk, he suddenly caught my arm and and pointed across the oak-dotted pastures in the direction of the garden, then started off almost at a run with his dog behind him, as if in pursuit of some intruder. Who was it? I asked. And Mr. Oak merely shook his head mournfully. Sometimes in the early autumn twilights, when the white mists rose from the parkland and the rooks formed long black lines on the palings, I almost fancied I saw him start at the very trees and bushes, the outlines of the distant oast houses with their conical roofs and projecting veins like jibing fingers in the half-light. Your husband is ill, I once ventured to remark to Mrs. Oak, as she sat for the hundred and thirtieth of my preparatory sketches. I somehow could never get beyond preparatory sketches with her. She raised her beautiful, wide, pale eyes, making as she did so that exquisite curve of her shoulders and neck and delicate pale head that I so vainly longed to reproduce. I don't see it, she answered quietly. If he is, why doesn't he go up to town and see the doctor? It's merely one of his glum fits. You shouldn't tease him about Lovelock, I added, very seriously. He'll get to believe in him. Why not? If he sees him, why, he sees him. He wouldn't be the only person that has done so. And she smiled faintly and half-perversely as her eyes sought that usual distant, indefinable something. But Oak got worse. He was growing perfectly unstrung, like a hysterical woman. One evening that we were sitting alone in the smoking room, he began, unexpectedly, a rambling discourse about his wife, how he had first known her when they were children, and they had gone to the same dancing school near Portland Place, how her mother, his aunt-in-law, had brought her for Christmas to Oakhurst while he was on his holidays, and how finally, thirteen years ago, when he was twenty-three and she was eighteen, they had been married. How terribly he'd suffered when they had been disappointed of their baby, and she had nearly died of the illness. I, I, I don't mind about the child, you know, he said in an excited voice, although there will be an end of us now, and Oakhurst will go to the courtesies. I minded only about Alice. It was next inconceivable that this poor excited creature, speaking almost with tears in his voice and in his eyes, was the quiet, well-got-up, irreproachable young ex-guardsman who'd walked into my studio a couple of months before. 
Oak was silent for a moment, looking fixedly at the rug at his feet, when he suddenly burst out in a scarce audible voice, If, if you knew how I cared for Alice, how I still care for her, I could kiss the ground she walks on. I would give anything, my life, any day, if only she would look for two minutes as if she liked me a little, as if she didn't utterly despise me. And the poor fellow burst into a hysterical laugh, which was almost a sob. Then he suddenly began to laugh outright, exclaiming with a sort of vulgarity of intonation, which was extremely foreign to him. Damn it, old fellow, this is a queer world we live in, and rang for more brandy and soda, which he was beginning, I noticed, to take pretty freely now, although he had been almost a blue ribbon man, as much so as is possible for a hospitable country gentleman, when I first arrived. 9. It became clear to me now that, incredible as it might seem, the thing that ailed William Oak was jealousy. He was simply madly in love with his wife and madly jealous of her. Jealous? But of whom? He himself would probably have been quite unable to say. In the first place, to clear off any possible suspicion, certainly not of me. Besides the fact that Mrs. Oak took only just a very little more interest in me than in the butler or the upper housemaid, I think that Oak himself was the sort of man whose imagination would recoil from realising any definite object of jealousy even though jealousy might be killing him, inch by inch. It remained a vague, permeating, continuous feeling, the feeling that he loved her, and she did not care a jack's straw about him, and that everything with which she came into contact was receiving some of that notice which was refused to him, every person, or thing, or tree, or stone. It was the recognition of that strange, far-off look in Mrs. Oak's eyes, of that strange, absent smile on Mrs. Oak's lips, eyes and lips, that had no look and no smile for him. Gradually his nervousness, his watchfulness, suspiciousness, tendency to start, took a definite shape. Mr. Oak was forever alluding to steps or voices he'd heard, to figures he had seen sneaking round the house. The sudden bark of one of the dogs would make him jump up, he cleaned and loaded very carefully all the guns and revolvers in his study, and even some of the old fowling pieces and holster pistols in the hall. The servants and tenants thought that Oak of Oakhurst had been seized with the terror of tramps and burglars. Mrs. Oak smiled contemptuously at all these doings. My dear William, she said one day, the persons who worry you have just as good a right to walk up and down the passages and staircase and to hang about the house as you or I. They were there, in all probability, long before either of us was born, and are greatly amused by your preposterous notions of privacy. Mr. Oak laughed angrily. I suppose you'll tell me it's Lovelock, your eternal Lovelock, whose steps I hear on the gravel every night. I suppose he has as good a right to be here as you or I. And he strode out of the room. Lovelock, Lovelock, why will she always go on like that about Lovelock? Mr. Oak asked me that evening, suddenly staring me in the face. I merely laughed. It's only because she has that play of his on the brain, I answered, and because she thinks you superstitious and likes to tease you. I don't understand, sighed Oak. How could he? And if I had tried to make him do so, he would merely have thought I was insulting his wife, 
and have perhaps kicked me out of the room. So I made no attempt to explain psychological problems to him. And he asked me no more questions until once. But I must first mention a curious incident that happened. The incident was simply this. Returning one afternoon from our usual walk, Mr. Oak suddenly asked the servant whether anyone had come. The answer was in the negative, but Oak didn't seem satisfied. We had hardly sat down to dinner when he turned to his wife and asked, in a strange voice which I scarcely recognised as his own, who had called that afternoon. No one, answered Mrs. Oak, at least to the best of my knowledge. William Oak looked at her fixedly. No one, he repeated in a scrutinising tone. No one, Alice? Mrs. Oak shook her head. No one, she replied. There was a pause. Who was it then that was walking with you near the pond about five o'clock? asked Oak slowly. His wife lifted her eyes straight to his and answered contemptuously. No one was walking with me near the pond at five o'clock or any other hour. Mr. Oak turned purple and made a curious hoarse noise like a man choking. I thought I saw you walking with a man this afternoon, Alice, he brought out with an effort, adding for the sake of appearances before me. I thought it might have been the curate. Um, Come with that report for me. Mrs. Oak smiled. I can only repeat that no living creature has been near me this afternoon, she said slowly. If you saw anyone with me, it must have been Lovelock, for there certainly was no one else. And she gave a little sigh like a person trying to reproduce in her mind some delightful but too evanescent impression. I looked at my host. From crimson his face had turned perfectly livid, and he breathed as if someone was squeezing his windpipe. No more was said about the matter. I vaguely felt that a great danger was threatening. To Oak or to Mrs. Oak, I couldn't tell which. But I was aware of an imperious inner call to avert some dreadful evil, to exert myself, to explain, to interpose. I determined to speak to Oak the following day, for I trusted him to give me a quiet hearing, and I did not trust Mrs. Oak. That woman would slip through my fingers like a snake if I attempted to grasp her elusive character. I asked Oak whether he would take a walk with me the next afternoon, and he accepted to do so with a curious eagerness. We started about three o'clock. It was a stormy, chilly afternoon, with great balls of white clouds rolling rapidly in the cold blue sky, and occasional lurid gleams of sunlight broad and yellow, which made the black ridge of the storm gathered on the horizon look blue-black like ink. We walked quickly across the sere and sodden grass of the park and on to the high road that led over the low hills, I don't know why, in the direction of Coates Common. Both of us were silent, for both of us had something to say and did not know how to begin. For my part, I recognised the impossibility of starting the subject. An uncalled for interference from me would merely indispose Mr. Oak and make him doubly dense of comprehension. So, if Oak had something to say, which he evidently had, it was better to wait for him. Oak, however, broke the silence, only by pointing out to me the condition of the hops as we passed one of his many hop gardens. It'll be a poor year, he said, stopping short and looking intently before him. No hops at all. No hops this autumn. I looked at him. 
It was clear that he had no notion what he was saying. The dark green vines were covered with fruit, and only yesterday he himself had informed me that he had not seen such a profusion of hops for many years. I didn't answer, and we walked on. A cart met us in a dip of the road, and the carter touched his hat and greeted Mr. Oak. But Oak took no heed. He didn't seem to be aware of the man's presence. The clouds were collecting all around black domes, among which coursed the round grey masses of fleecy stuff. I think we should be caught in a tremendous storm, I said. Hadn't we better be turning? He nodded and turned sharply round. The sunlight lay in yellow patches under the oaks and pasture lands and burnished the green hedges. The air was heavy and yet cold, and everything seemed preparing for a great storm. The rooks whirled in black clouds round the trees, and the conical red caps of the oast houses, which give that country the look of being studded with turreted castles. Then they descended, a black line upon the fields, with what seemed an unearthly loudness of caw, and all round there rose a shrill quavering bleating of lambs and calling of sheep, while the wind began to catch the topmost branches of the trees. Suddenly, Mr. Oak broke the silence. Um, I don't know you very well, he began hurriedly, without turning his face towards me, but I think you're honest and have seen a good deal of the world, much more than I. I want you to tell me, but truly please, what do you think a man should do if... And he stopped for some minutes. Uh, Imagine, he went on quickly, that a man cares a great deal, a very great deal for his wife, and that he finds out that she... Well that she's deceiving him. No, don't misunderstand me. I mean that she's constantly surrounded by someone else and will not admit it. Someone whom she hides away. Do you understand? Perhaps she doesn't know all the risks she's running, you know, but she won't draw back. She will not avow it to her husband. My dear Oak, I interrupted, attempting to take the matter lightly. These are questions that can't be solved in the abstract or by people to whom the thing has not happened. And it certainly hasn't happened to you or me. Oak took no notice of my interruption. You see, he went on, the man doesn't expect his wife to care much about him. It's not that he isn't merely jealous, you know, but he feels that she's on the brink of dishonouring herself because I don't think that a woman can really dishonour her husband Dishonour is in our own hands and depends only on our own acts. Uh, he ought to save her. Do you see? He, he must, must save her, in one way or another. But she will not listen to him. What can he do? Must he seek out the other one and, and try to get him out of the way? You see, it's all the fault of the other, not hers, not hers. If only she would trust in her husband, she'd be safe. But that other one won't let her. Look here, Oak, I said boldly, but feeling rather frightened. I know quite well what you're talking about, and I see you don't understand the matter in the very least. I do. I have watched you and watched Mrs. Oak these six weeks, and I see what's the matter. Will you listen to me? And taking his arm, I tried to explain to him my view of the situation, that his wife was merely eccentric and a little theatrical and imaginative, and that she took a pleasure in teasing him that he, on the other hand, was letting himself get into a morbid state, that he was ill, and ought to see a good doctor. I even offered to take him to town with me. I poured out volumes of psychological explanations, 
I dissected Mrs. Oak's character 20 times over and tried to show him that there was absolutely nothing at the bottom of his suspicions beyond an imaginative pose and a garden play on the brain. I had used twenty instances mostly invented for the nonce of ladies of my acquaintance who had suffered from similar fads. I pointed out to him that his wife ought to have an outlet for her imaginative and theatrical over-energy. I advised him to take her to London and plunge her into some set where everyone should be more or less in similar condition. I laughed at the notion of there being any hidden individual about the house. I explained to Oak that he was suffering from delusions and called upon so conscientious and religious a man to take every step to rid himself of them, adding innumerable examples of people who had cured themselves of seeing visions and of brooding over morbid fancies. I struggled and wrestled like Jacob with the angel, and I really hoped I had made some impression. At first, indeed, I felt that not one of my words went into the man's brain, that though silent, he wasn't listening. It seemed almost hopeless to present my views in such a light that he could grasp them. I felt as if I were expounding and arguing at a rock. But when I got to the tack of his duty towards his wife and himself, and appealed to his moral and religious notions, I felt that I was making an impression. I I dare say you're right, he said, taking my hand as we came in sight of the red gables of Oakhurst, and speaking in a weak, tired, humble voice. I don't understand you quite, but I'm sure that what you say is true. I dare say it's all that I'm seedy. I feel sometimes as if I were mad and just fit to be locked up, but don't think I don't struggle against it. I do, I do, continually. Only sometimes it seems too strong for me. I pray God night and morning to give me the strength to overcome my suspicions and to remove these dreadful thoughts from me. God knows I know what a wretched creature I am and how unfit I am to take care of that poor girl. And Oak again pressed my hand. As we entered the garden, he turned to me once more. I'm very, very grateful to you, he said. And indeed, I'll do my best to try and be stronger. If only, he added with a sigh, if only Alice would give me a moment's breathing time and not go on day after day mocking me with her love lock. 10. I had begun Mrs. Oak's portrait, and she was giving me a sitting. She was unusually quiet that morning, but it seemed to me, with the quietness of a woman who's expecting something, and she gave me the impression of being extremely happy. She had been reading, at my suggestion, the Vita Nuova, which she didn't know before, and the conversation came to roll upon that, and upon the question whether love so abstract and so enduring was a possibility. Such a discussion which might have savoured a flirtation in the case of almost any other young and beautiful woman became, in the case of Mrs. Oak, something quite different. It seemed distant, intangible, not of this earth, like her smile and the look in her eyes. Such love as that, she said, looking into the far distance of the oak-dotted parkland, is very rare, but it can exist. It becomes a person's whole existence, his whole soul, and it can survive the death, not merely of the beloved, but of the lover. It is unextinguishable, and goes on in the spiritual world until it meets a reincarnation of the beloved, and when this happens, it jets out and draws to it all that may remain of that lover's soul, and takes shape and surrounds the beloved once more. 
Mrs. Oak was speaking slowly, almost to herself, and I had never, I think, seen her look so strange and so beautiful. The stiff white dress bringing out but the more the exotic exquisiteness and incorporealness of her person. I didn't know what to answer, so I said, half in jest, I fear you've been reading too much Buddhist literature, Mrs. Oak. There is something dreadfully esoteric in all you say. She smiled contemptuously. I know people can't understand such matters, she replied, and was silent for some time. But through her quietness and silence, I felt, as it were, the throb of a strange excitement in this woman, almost as if I had been holding her pulse. Still, I was in hopes that things might be beginning to go better in consequence of my interference. Mrs. Oak had scarcely once alluded to Lovelock in the last two or three days, and Oak had been much more cheerful and natural since our conversation. He no longer seemed so worried, and once or twice I'd caught in him a look of great gentleness and loving kindness, almost of pity, as towards some young and very frail thing, as he sat opposite his wife. But the end had come. After that sitting, Mrs. Oak had complained of fatigue and retired to her room, and Oak had driven off on some business to the nearest town. I felt all alone in the big house, and after having worked a little at a sketch I was making in the park, I amused myself by rambling about the house. It was a warm, enervating autumn afternoon, the kind of weather that brings the perfume out of everything, the damp ground and fallen leaves, the flowers in the jars, the old woodwork and stuffs that seems to bring on to the surface of one's consciousness all manner of vague recollections and expectations, a something half pleasurable, half painful that makes it impossible to do or to think. I was the prey of this particular, not at all unpleasurable restlessness. I wandered up and down the corridors, stopping to look at the pictures, which I knew already in every detail, to follow the pattern of the carvings and old stuffs, to stare at the autumn flowers arranged in magnificent masses of colour in the big china bowls and jars. I took up one book after another and threw it aside. Then I sat down to the piano and began to play irrelevant fragments. I felt quite alone although I had heard the grind of the wheels on the gravel, which meant that my host had returned. I was lazily turning over a book of verses. I remember it perfectly well. It was Morris's Love is Enough in a corner of the drawing room. When the door suddenly opened and William Oak showed himself, he didn't enter, but beckoned to me to come out with him. Yet there was something in his face that made me start up and follow him at once. He was extremely quiet, even stiff not a muscle of his face moving, but very pale. I have something to show you, he said, leading me through the vaulted hall, hung round with ancestral pictures, into the gravelled space that looked like a filled-up moat, where stood the big, blasted oak, with its twisted, pointing branches. I followed him onto the lawn, or rather the piece of parkland that ran up to the house. We walked quickly, he in front, without exchanging a word. Suddenly he stopped. Just where there jutted out the bow window of the yellow drawing room, and I felt Oak's hand tight upon my arm. I've brought you here to see something, he whispered hoarsely, and he led me to the window. I looked in. The room, compared with the outdoor, was rather dark, but against the yellow wall I saw Mrs. Oak sitting alone on her couch in her white dress, her head slightly thrown back, 
a large red rose in her hand. Do you believe me now? whispered Oak's voice hot at my ear. Do you believe now? Was it all my fancy? But I'll have him this time. I've locked the door outside, and by God, he shan't escape. The words were not out of Oak's mouth when I found myself struggling with him silently outside that window, but he broke loose, pulled open the window and leapt into the room, and I after him. As I crossed the threshold, something flashed in my eyes. There was a loud report, a sharp cry, and a thud of a body on the ground. Oak was standing in the middle of the room, with a faint smoke about him, and at his feet, sunk down from the sofa, with her blonde head resting on its seat, lay Mrs. Oak, a pool of red forming in her white dress. Her mouth was convulsed, as if in that automatic shriek, but her wide-open white eyes seemed to smile vaguely and distantly. I know nothing of time. It all seemed to be one second, but a second that lasted hours. Oak stared, then turned round and laughed. The damned rascal has given me the slip again, he cried, and quickly unlocking the door, rushed out of the house with dreadful cries. That is the end of the story. Oak tried to shoot himself that evening, but merely fractured his jaw, and died a few days later, raving. There were all sorts of legal inquiries through which I went as through a dream, and whence it resulted that Mr. Oak had killed his wife in a fit of momentary madness. That was the end of Alice Oak. By the way, her maid brought me a locket which was found round her neck, all stained with blood. It contained some very dark auburn hair, not at all the colour of William Oak's. I'm quite sure it was Lovelock's. Everybody dies, don't they? So that was part 7 to 10 of Oak of Oakhurst, written by Vernon Lee, whose real name was Violet Paget, And I've lumped it together as part three, so I split the story into three episodes of about 45 minutes each. So it's quite a long story. It's unusual in that it's one of very, at least very few stories set in England. And it, I don't know why, but it isn't actually as famous as, as the Italian ones with Did a Wicked Voice and things like that set in Venice. So most of her stories are set on the continent where she spent most of her life. The story was originally called The Phantom Lover. And you can see why, because of course Alice Oak has the ghostly Lovelock, the poet Lovelock as her phantom lover. Actually, um, Violet Paget, Vernon Lee changed the name to Oak of Oakhurst. Now, Oak of Oakhurst is clearly William Oak. Although the narrator, and just to say something about the narrator, he hardly intrudes. He's like um, a film camera, isn't he? You know, he, he, he has some minor intervention. It doesn't really do much to try and help, help Oak from going nuts at the end, but it doesn't really do much. And, and he's really just a frame through which we see this drama unfold between William Oak and his wife, Alice, and of course her demon lover. So the other theme that we have is insanity. And it is perfectly plausible to understand this story as a, as a story about madness rather than about the supernatural. Vernon Lee's clever enough to leave both options open. And what happened with the ghost story in the late Victorian period was, in the early 18th century, the beginnings of the Gothic stories, the supernatural was just taken as the supernatural. There was no, it was ghosts were ghosts, monsters were monsters, as in folk tales. But in the Victorian period, like this is 
1880, rationality came in. And so, you know, you had to at least give the option that there was no supernatural, that there, is, there are other explanations. So madness is a, a clever explanation for how these things appear. So they appear to be supernatural, but they're not supernatural. They're due to madness. And that is in keeping with the rationalistic 19th century that was attempting to explain on one hand, I mean, you've got spiritualism as well, but certainly clever people were seeing things in terms of the mind and the psyche rather than spirits. Clinically speaking, a poor old William Oak has descended into a psychotic depression. He's so depressed, he's become psychotic and this does happen. And he, and, he, and he has paranoid delusions that his wife is being seen by the ghost of um, this cavalier poet. And the wife encourages him now. She kind of alludes that she may have seen the ghost, but really there's no evidence that she did. So we, we can read it either way. Either she did see the ghost or she's just teasing her husband. She's a very strange woman. And from the outset, our narrator, the painter, makes out that she is the really interesting one. She is lovely and exquisite, but she's monstrous. She's horrible to her husband. And he is a really decent, if dull, he's a really decent bloke. The real hero of this story, going back to it being called the Phantom Lover, the Phantom Lover is not the hero. The real hero of this story is the ordinary decent man, William Oak, who is driven to madness. Okay, he becomes a crazed murderer at the end. but. We still kind of like him. I did anyway. It wasn't his fault. I thought he'd been driven to it by the naughty Alice Oak. She's probably got a histrionic personality disorder. He's got a psychotic depression. Uh, or they're haunted by the cavalier poet, but, and, and she is possessed by the ghost of her ancestor. So you can read it both ways. I think it's a kind of a subtle story, and it reminds me quite a lot, not in setting, but in theme. Yeah, a bit of Oliver Onions' is, uh, The Beckoning Fair one. We've done a series of stories about ghosts in houses where, and not so strongly in this one, but certainly the ghost is that lives in the house in this one. But um, some of these stories we've done, I've just put up Shirley Jackson's A Visit onto YouTube, and that is the, the ghost is definitely the house, is the spirit there. And also Full Circle, which we did, um, by John Buchan, the, the ghost is the house definitely there. And They by Rudyard Kipling. Now, of course, the ghost isn't the house, but it is, it's very much a part of it. And if you remember in Gothic literature, the Gothic, all Gothic stories have to have the Gothic edifice where everything happens. So that is usually a castle or a ruined abbey in the classic. Um, but that developed in an English context to the English manor house. And that's, that's what we see here. So it is a classic Gothic story, but it is subtle, and so it's pretty good. So I don't know what more I want to say about that. Probably nothing. Yep, so that's it. Oak of Oakhurst, more next week. All right, cheers. Bye-bye. Isn't that so? Isn't that so? Isn't that so? Isn't that so?